Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. You know, I have always enjoyed cliffhangers. You know, those books where you get to the end of the chapter and something happens and you just got to read the next page or two of the next chapter to find out, did the guy die? Did they really survive? Did they do this or that or something? Uh, A cliffhanger is one of those things where it just kind of ends and there's some question, some dilemma, something that's got to be resolved. Uh, you know, television shows do that. And, uh, you know, back in the old days when you had to wait a week till the next episode, you know, uh, it was really kind of hard. But, boy, I'll tell you what, with the whole streaming thing, you know, and you got the whole series there, I mean, you watch and it's like, oh, you sit down to watch one of them, but because there's a cliffhanger, you, you know, five episodes later, it's like, we got to finally go to bed, you know? And, uh, you know, Vicky and I, we really got hooked on this one series. I'm not going to tell you what it was because you judge us. But anyway, uh, this, whoever wrote the thing was the master of cliffhangers. And, and, you know, so many times it would end and then we'd watch like five or seven minutes of the next episode just so we knew it so we could go to bed and all that stuff. And, and there was one time it ended and, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And Vicky goes, Oh, he's not dead. It, 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 you know, he, he, he takes care of everything in the next uh, episode. And I'm like, how do you know? And she goes, well, I read a synopsis of the whole thing. You know, I hate these cliffhangers. And she went, uh, she had read the whole series. I mean, we were only like on season two and it's like seven seasons. She knew the whole story because she says, I hate that. I can't go to sleep if I don't know what's going to happen. So I've just read the whole thing. And she's like, do you want to know the whole thing? And I'm like, no, I want to watch it. I, I actually enjoy these things. I enjoy the suspense. Well, this chapter that's in the Bible here, uh, Revelation 14, it is definitely written for the Vicki Hornocks of, among us who, who don't like the suspense. Because this is like a synopsis of the rest of the story. Okay, now, we're working through Revelation, and uh, if I counted right, I think this is our 13th message on it. We actually started way back in October, and, uh, you know, we've taken some time. But where are we in the story? Okay, you remember, the book of Revelation is a Sunday afternoon dream that the Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle John got from God of what's going to happen in the future, and that he saw Jesus, and Jesus had a message for these seven key churches that John was supposed to write all this stuff up for. And the part that, that we've really been paying attention to is starts in chapter 4, where John goes into the throne room of God. This is all in his dream, all in his vision. He goes in the throne room of God, and God has a document, a scroll, and that scroll is his treatment plan, if you will, for the world, and how to bring about justice, how to make all things right, how to get the world prepared for when Jesus comes the second time. Remember, he came the first time and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, they didn't repent. They didn't accept him as the king. And so he left. 
After he died on the cross, he went back to heaven. But he left with the promise that I'm coming again, and that's when the kingdom's going to be. And so all of this stuff that we're looking at, in a way, is kind of designed to soften up the world so that the world will be ready for when Jesus comes the second time. And uh, so we saw that document, and it, it, it contained all these judgments in it that were revealed when he broke open the seals, and when he got to a certain part, there were more judgments, and those judgments were announced by trumpets. And then, you know, starting in about chapter 10, he kind of paused the story and just started throwing in a whole bunch of details. And I, I'm calling this kind of the excursus, okay? Starts in chapter 10 through 14. It doesn't really advance the story. It just throws in a whole bunch of details. Like, here's some of the stuff we saw during this, ex we've been seeing during the excursus. He told us about how there's going to be these two witnesses. You know, we don't know whether it's Elijah and Moses, but they're kind of like Elijah and Moses. They perform these same kind of miracles that Elijah and Moses were. And, and the Antichrist, he wants to kill him, but he's never given permission to kill him until the very end of the tribulation. So we learned about the two witnesses. We also, in chapter 12, we learned about why Satan absolutely hates Israel. You know, we always, you know, I mean, we've seen it for 2,000 years. Why is it that anti-Semitism is so rampant? Why is it that the Jewish people in particular, there's always these moves to totally exterminate them? We learned that in chapter 12. Satan hates the people that brought about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, and then last week we looked in chapter 13 and we saw, you know, you know, he finally introduced us to the Antichrist and the false prophet, the two beasts of Satan. Well, today we're going to be in chapter 14. And essentially what's going on in chapter 14, it's kind of like the end of this excursus and he's just going to start giving us some information that kind of... Uh, just supplies a lot of answers to some really cool questions that we might have. And so that's kind of how I've organized what we're going to look at today. It's like uh, several questions that uh, he answers for us. And here's the first question. You know, okay, what is it that happened to the 144,000? And you say, well, wait a minute, now, who were the 144,000? Now, I know it's been a long time, but back in chapter 7, we were introduced to a group of people, and there was 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, 144,000, 12 times 12, 144,000. And remember, okay, here's how it's going to lay out, we believe that before any of this stuff happens, there's going to be what, the, what is commonly referred to as a rapture. We believe that what Jesus promised in John 14 and what Jesus promised and what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 and what he talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself is going to ascend, descend from heaven. There's going to be a shout, the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ are going to rise then we who are alive and remain, we're going to be caught up together, snatched up together, raptured up together, and we'll thus always be with the Lord from then on. Jesus said, 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 2 and 3. And so the next thing for us is that rapture. And, and one moment after the rapture, there isn't one believer on the face of the earth. There isn't one person who has trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Well, how do people get saved going forward? One of the ways they get saved was through the ministry of those 144,000. I mean, we've seen as we've walked through this thing, there's tons of people that are martyrs, people that are dying for the faith. And it's like, how'd they get saved? They got saved primarily through the ministry of these 144,000. So, logical question. What happened to them? You know, I can't wait till chapter 19. Tell me now. I'm Vicki Hornock. I want to read the synopsis. That's what chapter 14 is. So look at it here, okay? Verse 1, chapter 14. I looked, John says, I looked, and it's kind of like he's looking way out in the storyline because it hadn't been told yet, but it's almost like he's looking all the way to the end of chapter 19, the start of chapter 20. This will make sense when you get there or if, it, if you're familiar with the book. He says, I looked and behold, I saw the Lamb, Jesus Christ, standing on Mount Zion. Well, when's Jesus going to stand on Mount Zion? When he comes back. All of this stuff we've been talking about has been to prepare the world for Jesus coming. So it's like at this point, before he gets, goes back and tells about more judgments, which he's going to do in chapters 15 and 16, he says, I looked out in the future and I saw Jesus. I saw when it was all done. This whole treatment plan had been executed. I saw Jesus standing on Mount Zion, what, Jerusalem. And guess who was with him? And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their forehead. Now, if you went and looked at the last couple verses of chapter 13, you'd realize he had just told us about how almost everyone on the face of the earth was going to have Satan's mark on their forehead or on their hand. These 144,000, they don't have Satan's mark on it. They've got the Lamb's mark on them. So John says, I looked out there, and there's Jesus and the 144,000. And I heard a voice from heaven. So he's seeing them standing in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, the 144,000 are looking pretty sharp. They've got their name on their forehead, Jesus' name on their forehead. And from heaven, John hears the sound of many waters, the sound, like the sound of a loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing. I mean, it's like he's hearing all of this stuff, and it is essentially this host of heaven singing a new song. See at verse 33? They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. 
And guess what? No one could learn that song except for the 144,000. These 144,000 who had persevered during this time of tribulation. They had the mark of God on them. They had the seal of God on them. They were protected. But man, they endured the earthquakes. They endured the famines. They endured the pestilence. They endured all the persecution. They had all these near-death experiences because the Antichrist would have loved to kill them. But they made it. And they're singing this new song that's coming out of heaven. You know that expression, new song? It's kind of interesting. You track that, and it seems like it's always a, it's, it's, it's a song, a, a word of praise to God for something he's done. It's like, you know, you go to the mailbox tomorrow, and, you know, there's this huge check that comes to you, and it's like, oh, this is like bl- blessings from heaven. You know, here's God blessing me with this thing. You, you know, you'd walk in and you'd sing a new song. You know, it's like, honey, look at what God gave us today. This is incredible. We needed this. And in the nick of time, God gave it. That's a new song. So here's, here's heaven. They see Jesus standing there. It's like it's all done. And they break out praising God on behalf of the 144,000, and the 144,000 were able to sing it along with them. And look at how he describes the 144,000. These are the ones who never defiled themselves with women, for they kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These are the ones who were purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. I mean, not only did these people go out and tell people about Christ, they stayed holy to the Lord. You know, it's kind of hard to figure out, okay, what does that mean up there in verse 4 at the very beginning? They never defiled themselves with women. I mean, was it that... that, uh, they were never supposed to marry. Maybe they were males, and, and it's like, okay, I want you just to be celibate. You don't, you don't have time or energy to have a wife and provide for her and the children that might come from that marriage. I, I want you just to be celibate and single for me for these next seven years and uh, go preach. I mean, you are going to be 24-7 for me. Was that it? Or, or is it describing... They were married, but you know what? At that time, one of the hints that we get all throughout it, that, that, that the tribulation is going to be a time that is so decadent, so immoral, so wicked, that immorality, adultery, is just rampant. And it's common. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's doing it. And well, here's 144,000 that didn't do it. So it's either one or those that, that, that he's referring to, they kept that whatever standard it was that God had called them to, maybe to never have a spouse or, or to remain pure in their marriage, they were chaste, they were pure. And, you know, isn't that, you know I, know, I know it's tough now because the world is getting so wicked. 
But honestly, I mean, I feel like every other week I, I get a, you know, one of my newsy emails that, you know, provide me with Christian news of some other big-time Christian that's washed out or flunked out or wiped out morally. And, and God is calling us to be pure. I mean, that's terrible. And, and uh, man, if anything, as, as, you know, over the last five, seven years with all the stuff with gender and same-sex this and same-sex that, and I'm going to switch and become this, I mean, God is calling you, he's calling me. If you're a child of God, God is calling you to a holy, pure life. And, and we are, are getting to where, where uh, it is just so rampant. And, you know, usually it's like, oh, he messed up. So he's going to go off for some real intensive training. But he'll be back in the pulpit in three weeks. So, you know, just come on back because he's here. I mean, no. I mean, go to First, First Timothy 3. God calls leaders of the church, the elders, to be above reproach, to be pure, chaste, the husband of one wife, etc., I mean, there is supposed to be a, a, a testimony, and that's the standard that God really calls all of us to. So what happens to the 144,000? They make it to the end. And they're there intact with their testimony intact. God saved them just like he said he would seven years earlier. Okay, another question. Okay, now is anyone going to be able to get saved during this time? Are there really? Okay, these guys were set to help people come to know Christ, but did anyone ever really get saved? Look at the next couple verses. It wasn't just going to be through these 144,000. He says, and I saw, verse 6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because of the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of the waters. So it's like after John sees these, these 144,000 standing there with Jesus when he comes, he, he hears this angel that had gone throughout the, the whole earth calling people to repentance. Did many listen? No, but some did. But he's calling them, he's saying, he's the creator, fear him, give him glory. All of these judgments that are happening, all these horrible things that are happening, this is God's work. Do you remember in Matthew 24 when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, the little hill outside of Jerusalem, and he's there, you know, it's on Tuesday before they killed him on Friday, and he's talking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and telling them, you know, what the signs are going to be of the end time, Matthew 24. We call it the Olivet Discourse. You know, about verse 15, he says, the gospel's going to pre be preached to everyone. I think that's what it's referring to. I think this, this is a good place to link those two verses together, because this gospel that gets disseminated by the 144,000, by the two witnesses, and then also just by the way God has created the world, Romans 1, just general revelation. The word is going to be out there. Look at the end of verse 6. 
to every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every people. No one's going to be able to say at the end of the tribulation, well, I wish somebody would have told me about Jesus. I would have trusted him if someone would have witnessed to me. No one's going to have that excuse. No one's going to be able to say, God, you, you know, never let me know about it. I mean, human beings have an incredible ability to reject the truth. But God is basically saying, I will be faithful to get the message out there during this seven-year period of time. So by the time Jesus Christ comes and he stands on that Mount Zion with the 144,000, everyone will know why he was there. Whether they believed or not, it's another story. But the message will have gotten out. Look at the next question. What about this evil system? Now, we haven't talked about this yet, but we're going to talk about it a lot when we get to chapter 17. There, there, one of the things that is going to happen during the tribulation is, you know, there's always been this alternative religion, okay? You know, what we're supposed to do is worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to the people of Israel, the one who redeemed Israel out of Egypt and got them through the Red Sea and gave them the Ten Commandments and all the other rules and regulations. That, that, that is the true religion. You know, it culminates in Jesus Christ coming and dying for our sins, the Son of God, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's, that's the true religion, but there's always been this alternative religion. And it manifests itself in lots of different forms. But it goes all the way back to Genesis 10 when, as you know, they built the Tower of Babel. You know, after the flood, God said, be fruitful, multiply, spread out, and fill the earth. And what did mankind do? They didn't spread out. They clustered together in a place called Babel, whose name ultimately became Babylon, which is in today, modern-day Iraq. I mean, Saddam Hussein, before his career got interrupted by a desert storm, was in the process of rebuilding Babylon, this city that probably was 5,000 years old or more, probably the oldest city on the face of the earth. And, and Babylon has always kind of represented that alternative, counterfeit religion. You don't want to worship the one true God. What you really want to worship is, and when it boils right down to it, it's yourself. It is, I'm the center of the universe. I am, it's all about me. And so whether I take like the cults do and I kind of take Christianity to, and rework it and make it some other something else that, that has me calling the shots and it's all about me or just some other religion, it's all about me. They all basically point to a point of authority. 
True Christianity, biblical Christianity, says the point of authority is the sovereign king of the universe, the one true God, God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every other religion, whether they take the name of Christian or not, every other religion basically has at the center man, themselves. It's full of a bunch of self-made men who worship their creator, themselves. That was started at Babel in Genesis 10, and it continues on. And the spirit of Babel, Babylon, is going to get, is, is, you know, you just look around today and see what's going on. It is so prevalent, and that is just going to continue, continue on. We'll talk more about this in about three weeks when we get to finally get to uh, chapter 17. But look what, ha- what it says about Babel, okay? Because we're asking, is it, is it going to continue on? In other words, after Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, is that going to be there? Look at verse 8. Another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations to drink wine of the passion of her immorality. No. No, it is going to be finally wiped out. When Jesus comes in his kingdom, everyone is going to worship him. Their hearts may not worship him, but everyone will. There's going to, that system is going to change. We'll talk more about that in days ahead. Another question. What about, what about those, okay, we're here at the end of the tribulation. Jesus is on the th- uh, there on Mount Zion, the 144,000. Everyone on the face of the earth has had the gospel presented to them in some form or measure. I mean, what about those people that got the mark of the beast? You know, the little chip or the tattoo or whatever it ends up being on their forehead or their hand. Look at verse 9. Another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he's going to drink the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You know what? Those people will go to destruction, to hell. The people who do not accept Jesus Christ as Savior, who don't accept the gift that Jesus Christ purchased for them on the cross of Calvary, they end up in hell. That's what he's describing there. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I mean, the believers who persevered through, they're going to be rewarded. The unbelievers, there will be a day of reckoning. 
at the end of that time. You know, I mean, we don't like to sit and think about that, but we should. That person you know, that person you maybe are related to, that does not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, this is describing the end of the story for them. I mean, and it, 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 it we don't understand. We, we have a hard time reconciling. I mean, God's really going to send them there forever? I mean, surely after, you know, a little while, he just annihilate them and put them out of their misery. Well, the same description is given to us in heaven. They're in hell for as long as we're in heaven. We call it eternal life or eternal death. Let's move on to something a little more pleasant. Verse 13 answers another question. What about us? What about the believers? What about those believers who didn't survive? And it's not us. I misspoke there. What about the people who did come to know Christ through, say, the ministry of the 144,000 or maybe the ministry of the two witnesses, or they just, Romans 1, they looked around and they said, there's got to be a God and he's got to be speaking. And maybe they found a Bible and they read John 3, 16, and they found Christ. But they did die. Because at least half of the world's population is going to be dead by the time you get to the end of the tribulation. Many are going to die. They'll die either at the hands of uh, the Antichrist and his agents, or they might just die from the wars and the famines and the pestilence and the other. What about the believers that die? Look at verse 13. This is a great verse because you know what happens to them is also the same thing that happens to us. He said, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them, follow with them. What is he saying there? The person who dies in the Lord goes into rest. They rest from their labor. My parents, Vicky's parents, the other loved ones that we all have who died in the Lord, the ones in the tribulation time that's future, but even the ones I think you could say now, you know what? They are enjoying God's rest. They have entered into that time. It's like they've, they've ceased from their labors. They're, they're in this this this. They're in the presence of God, and the Bible tells us a whole bunch more about them. But here, they don't have to fight anymore. They don't have to struggle anymore. They don't have to sit and say, how in the world can I stay holy? They are holy. They are enjoying God's face. You know, you just think of some of the people in our church that have died over the last couple years. These wonderful saints that walked with the Lord for years and years and years. And many of them struggled those last many months of their lives with these horrible diseases or this hard stuff that was, go that was going on in their lives. They're at peace now. They're resting. And you know what? That's your future. 
should the Lord tarry? Should that rapture that I talked about at the beginning not happen before you die? When you die, when I die, we rest from our labor. That's a wonderful truth. One more question. This one, he gives a longer answer. Okay, now what? It's like all throughout Scripture, it talks about how at the end of the age, there's this great harvest. Remember Jesus told all those stories in Matthew 13? Mark 4 talks about them as well. And it's like, okay, here's the kingdom of heaven. It's like wheat and weeds. And they grow up together, but then at the end of the age, they sort it out and all the wheat is God's stuff and the weeds get sent off and get burned. And uh, the kingdom of heaven is like this, this fisherman who throws out this big net. You know, back in those days, they fished uh, just with nets. They throw it out and they get all these great trout and bass and other things that you might want to eat, but they also get some rotten fish and you pull them all in. At the end of the age, they sort them all out. Or in another parable, it's like, here's all the sheep and here's all the goats. There's this big sorting. When's that big harvest? Well, that happens right at this end time. When Jesus is standing on Mount Zion, the 144 are around. They're singing the new song from heaven. They're praising the Lord. It's like there is this huge harvest. Look at, look at verse 14 down to 20. I looked, and behold, there was a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hands. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come. Behold, the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, and the one who had power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who put the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress, the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden out. You know, there's a real famous song that uh, kind of got some of its inspiration here. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Should have gotten the words all the way down. The wine press was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. I don't really know what to make of that, but that's a lot of blood. So what's he describing there? Here when Christ comes back, there is this great harvest, this great sorting. It's like he said in Matthew 24. Two people are going to be in the bed. One's taken, the other's left. Well, some of you say, isn't that the rapture? No, it's not the rapture. It's the second coming. Because where is the one taken? taken to 
to punishment. The one left gets invited to go into the kingdom along with the 144,000, along with other believers who survived the tribulation. Who starts the kingdom, the millennial kingdom? People who are alive at the end of the tribulation who have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Those 144,000 started. Maybe if they were had to be celibate or, and single the whole time of the tribulation, maybe finally they can have a spouse and enjoy life that way. Maybe the, these other people that came to know Jesus Christ that just, man, they were dodging all these judgments and famines and plagues and wars and all that stuff, and finally Jesus comes back and it's all done, and they're like, finally. I can move to Texarkana and settle down and enjoy life like I'd like to enjoy it here in the kingdom of God. That's what's happening here. But what's happening to the people that do not know Christ? There's this giant sickle, and it's like the grapes, the rotten grapes are getting smashed and taken, taken away. One time when the disciples asked Jesus, I think it's in Luke, they said, where are they taking them away to? And he said, where the vultures eat them. I mean, we we'll always have our, our favorite descriptions of hell. It's a bottomless pit. It's a lake of fire. In that instance, Jesus said, you're, you're roadkill and the vultures are eating on you. Hell's a horrible place, but that's what happens at the end of the tribulation, at the beginning of the kingdom when Jesus is there on Mount Zion with his 144,000. So that's what Jesus, what the, the Apostle John, before he resumes the story, because the story's going to start again in chapter 15, because we still got to get it done. We've only talked about the seven seals and the seven trumpets, but we still got to talk about seven other judgments, and we'll do those over the next couple weeks. Because some of us couldn't wait and needed a synopsis, God, the Holy Spirit, said, just, just here, let me answer some questions for you. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's how it's going to pan out. Now, let's get back to the story, and let me tell you how it ends. Here's the last question I want to throw up here. What about us? What about us? Okay, because... We're actually not there. I really believe that, that the next thing for us, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, it is for what Jesus promised in, math, in John 14. What Paul described in 1 Thessalonians 4, in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the, the next thing on God's agenda for us, is he's coming to get his bride and take us to be with him. You know, Jesus, on the night of, of the Passover, the Last Supper, the night before they crucified him, he announced to the disciples, he said, hey, I'm, I'm leaving. And they said, you're leaving? And what did Jesus say? I love the way the, the King James people translated it 400 years ago. He said, let not your heart be troubled. 
you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And I love Thomas because he was sitting there and at least he had the, the courage to say, Lord, we don't know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. For you, for me, who have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, that's our future. This is stuff that should motivate us about those who do not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. That person that you know, maybe that you work with, maybe that you live with, maybe that you're related to, that does not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, the stuff we've been talking about, that's their future. We who have trusted Christ will be taken. Those that are left behind, they're going to endure hardship. And the vast, vast majority of them, even though they'll hear the gospel, the eternal gospel as he describes it there in verses 6 and 7, they'll still reject. You know, if ever there was a, time, a, a passage that should motivate us to share Christ with those that do not know Christ, it, it should be these passages in the book of Revelation. That, that, that tells us that we need to do what the Apostle Paul told Timothy to do in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Watch your life and your doctrine. Watch the philosophy of life that you live by and watch how you live it. Because people are watching and they want the answers. I know it's hard to talk to people about where they are with Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul said, how are they going to hear if no one tells them? God's system is that we are the ones who share the gospel. And uh, I, I just really want to encourage you. If you know the Lord as your Savior, think strategically about those in your life who do not know the Lord. How could you share Christ with them? And pray that God will give you opportunity to, to live out righteousness before them and speak righteousness before them. And then i got to close with this. Maybe you're here, and, and in reality, you, you don't know Christ. That might sound offensive to you, but, but truth of the matter is maybe you, you never really have come to that place in your life when you recognize that you, you cannot get out of this place alive. You, you really don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You might have gotten baptized. You might have walked in front of a 
uh, church. You might be a member of five churches here in Texarkana, but truth of the matter is you really don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's as simple as believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ came to die for you. He came to pay the penalty for your sin. He bought your ticket, and he is inviting you to trust him for eternal life. That is the main thing that God wants you to know. If you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing else is important. Not lunch plans, not that afternoon nap, not that heavy meeting that you got to face tomorrow morning. The most important thing is getting your relationship settled with God. Because right now, the only way to have a relationship with the real God is through Jesus Christ who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that if there's some here today that really and truly do not know Jesus Christ, have never come to that place in their life when they have trusted in him and trusted in him alone for salvation, for eternal life. I pray, Father, that today they would trust in him, that you would give them that life, that life eternal. And, Father, for those of us that do have that relationship because we have trusted Christ. I pray, Father, that today you would move in our hearts and, Lord, we would, we would be heavy-hearted about those that in our life that do not know Christ. And, Lord, I really do pray for an opportunity for us to share Christ Lord, we, we do not want to see folks left behind. We do not want to see folks suffering for eternity. We thank you for Jesus and the opportunity that uh, he provides. And Father, I pray that uh, we would step up and fulfill our role in that mission. Thank you, Father, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.